Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Chitheads podcast. My guest today is Jill Purse. Jill is recognized internationally as the pioneer of both the sound and the ancestral healing movements. In the 1970s, she introduced the teaching of overtone chanting throughout the world and the spiritual potential of the voice for healing and meditation. In the early 70s, she lived and worked with German composer Karl Heinz Stockhausen, exploring the spiritual dimension of music. She learned overtone chanting in the Himalayas with the chant master of the Gyuto Tibetan Monastery. Jill practiced Dzogchen since 1978 with Namkai Norbu Rinpoche. In the last 40 years, she pioneered her workshops, Healing Voice and Healing the Family and Ancestors, the latter a unique combination of family constellations, chant, and ceremony. Author of The Mystic Spiral, Journey of the Soul, her recordings include overtone chanting, meditations, and the healing voice. She lives in London with her husband, Rupert Sheldrake, who is also a guest on the podcast, and their two sons, musician Cosmo and ecologist Merlin. So with that, hello, Jill. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hello. <laughs> so it's a real pleasure to have the opportunity to chat with you, especially having had a recent conversation, delightful conversation with Rupert. And, um, and so he so generously um, recommended you as well. So I'm very excited to talk to you today about uh, some of the work that you've done around sound and a number of other things. But before we get into all of that, I'd love to hear a little bit about your own story and what led you to the work that you now do. Well, it's a long story, really. My mother was a concert pianist and my father was a surgeon. So I mm. think healing and sound were bred on the bone or bred in the bone from a very early stage. And, um, and then um, as, a, as a child, I was very inf influenced by the movement of water. And um, as I remember one particular instance standing uh, in Oxford, I was at a boarding school in Oxford, and watching the, the flows of water being resisted at a weir. And I realized that uh, when you interrupt the flow of water, you have these uh, independent eddies, which become uh, like physical entities. So I became very interested in flows, flow patterns and, uh, and spirals in particular. And then uh, later on, I took the spiral as a question of the universe. I realized that uh, just by looking at uh, the spiral as a record of growth in time, of movement and growth in time, that uh, this made sense of so many different areas of, of investigation which normally were considered separate and it, it meant that it was a kind of integrative process where you could understand everything in relation to everything else. Mm. So, so the the kind of Im image or the symbol of the spiral was a way of sort of moving past this um, kind of paradigm of looking at the world that is splicing things up and and splitting things off that you might say is sort of characteristic of of the western kind of materialist model would you is is that part of the inspiration behind your relationship with spirals in that way yes i mean i real i realized that that you know you couldn't any longer look at the world in a com compartmentalized way you had to see it as a as a continuum and I was very interested in the spiritual path. And, and so in almost all traditions, the spiral represents the journey of the soul. So the, the gradual mm. understanding of the self rotating around the central axis, which is, which, which is what you aspire to, which is the still point, which is the present moment, which is the now, but always rotating around it in a process of gradual development. And so I wrote the book, The Mystic Spiral, which was this mystical aspect of this. Um, and using illustrations from the art of all different cultures, showing this as a psychological process. And um, this was always a, a kind of excerpt from a much larger vision of the spiral in nature, spiral in, in, in literature, spiral in art, spiral in consciousness. So it seemed to be the, the perfect way of understanding the world. And mm. uh, so, but the only one that I published was The Mystic Spiral, which came out in 1973, 1974. I wrote it in 73 and it came out in 1974 and it's amazingly, it's still in print. <laughs> Amazing. So if you could say, uh, this is sort of coming to me as you're describing this, if, if, there would, if there was a symbol that sort of was dominating the kind of 
um, our current kind of cultural imagination as opposed to something like the spiral and what it can offer in terms of, you know, highlighting this inner, inner journey. What would you say that is? Does that make sense what I'm asking? Well, I mean, I think that is the spiral. I, I, are you saying other than the spiral? I, I mean, I think that's what the spiral is, really. It, 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 um, it has no beginning and it has no end. Right, right. So you have done a lot of work, especially in um, more recently in, in sound healing and, and um, doing these workshops in, um, in um, uh, overtone chanting. And so I'm curious what sort of was the transition for you from this specifically work on the spiral um, to the work in sound? Well, I realized, I, well, actually, what, what was really about form, I became very interested in how form comes into being. And so mm. the spiral was one example of that, you know, through these flow forms, uh, through the resistance to flow, bringing about independent eddies. So an example of a of, of form coming into being through, through kind of uh, hydrodynamics in a way. And, um, and then the other aspect of form coming into being was in the work of, um, of people like Hans Jenny, Kymatics or Faraday waves, um, which are the, or Cleadne patterns, which are these patterns that um, come into being in formless, seamless substances when you uh, uh, add sound and vibration. And then what you see are these very complex patterns of order coming into seamless, formless substances. And so that was what started me working with sound. It was, it was seeing the forms being created by sound itself. Because you, what you see, if you, for example, if you put, if you sprinkle powder onto a metal plate and then you take a, a violin bow and you vibrate it, it, again, what you see is all the powder goes into the part of the plate that's not being vibrated. So mm. the, the pattern of vibration. So it was seeing these patterns um, in matter brought about by sound that made me realize the importance of sound. So, so in both cases, it was how, how does form come into being, which I realized was a, an unanswered question. And it's still an unanswered question. It is, yeah. And, and so that's what led me to sound. And then gradually, as I, as I began to work with sound, I realized that, that in the West, we had gone silent, you know, that all the ways that, that we had in community and church and in, in our religious activities, societal activities, all the ways that traditionally we had sung together, chanted together, made sounds together, had been eroded from our lives and, and that we had actually gone silent as a community. And, and also through the development of musical notation, um, uh, music was hijacked by the professionals, you know, very early on, so that you had to read music if you were going to, uh, and interestingly, the word is execute somebody else's music. And uh, <laughs> yeah. so, so I, I realized that, that all the ways that we had of, of, of becoming a community through chant had been eroded. And, and so what I wanted to do was reintroduce a way of chanting and singing together without having to sign up to some kind of spiritual path. So having spent many, many years studying in many spiritual paths, what I did was find the commonality. What were these principles behind using the voice as a, as a meditative tool that I could then teach people to use, even if they were disaffected from being Jewish or Christian or Sufi or Muslim, or, and, but just wanted to find, I suppose, what now is called spirituality without religion, you know. How, how could they develop their awareness through, through reclaiming their own voices uh, and, and thus creating community? Yeah. Jill, what you're saying is really fascinating. And I think it's one of the things that I've really enjoyed most about getting to know your work is, um, and I haven't, I don't think ever read or, or seen someone kind of put it this way in the, the, or, or draw attention to the way in which we as a culture have lost our our, our relationship to sound. And, and, and so I'm curious just to take a step back, you know, what are the factors do you think that have contributed? I mean, obviously, you know, um, you know, moving away from, from traditional kind of spiritual practices is perhaps one of them, but do you see any other kind of cultural forces playing a part in this loss of our kind of intuitive connection to vibration or sound? Well, I think one is the one I was just referring to, which is this development of musical literacy, um, where you, you write down the music that 
you know, that comes to you or, the, or, or somebody else's music. And then that is a language which is then only accessible to those people who read music. And that's always been limited. What it gives you is the ability to, to um, reinterpret and carry on something which was written a long time ago. So it's very, and, and also to put together very complex um, sonorous events with many permutations and combinations of sound, you know, of, of timing, of rhythm, of pitch, of melody, uh, of beginning and end, and all, all, the, all the sort of parameters of, of sound um, can be uh, remembered, recalled, and, and then reproduced. So, so it gives us an ability to do something that we never had without it. But at the same time, it then becomes only available to those people, in a sense, professionals. Yeah. So, so really, music was hijacked in a way by the professionals. And one of the things um, about the opposite of professional, you know, is, is being an amateur. And, and the word amateur means to love something. So by definition, there's a there's a sense that that if you are an amateur, you love it, and if you're a professional, well, maybe you know you <laughs> don't. So yeah. I think that 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 led people to um, being disaffected, but also I think um, the the idea of recording sound. So I, I strangely and ironic. So before people recorded sound, you know, in in certainly in Europe, people had pianos and they stood around. Well, after pianos were invented, of course, they sang they sang together. They sang around the piano and so on. But as soon as you had recording sound, you get professionals who put the sound into the machine, and then you, as a passive listener, are the one who listens to it and feels that they are somehow inferior. And so also there's a sense in which by putting earphones on, you can ram sound back inside you where it should have been all along <laughs> and go deaf in the process. <laughs> um, so um, I think, you know, this being hijacked by the professionals, you know, has quite a big, you know, line in terms of not, not just musical literacy, but also in terms of recorded music. So if, there's, if there are people out there who, who record music, then people who don't record music become the passive listeners and gradually their confidence is eroded and they feel that they're not good enough. Um, but also there's what I mentioned before, all the spiritual activities, all the societal and spiritual activities where people have always come together um, as, as a spiritual practice in, in almost all traditions, uh, and, and these again have been whittled away out of our society as people no longer go to take part in these things. Um, so one way or another that's happened, but actually since I started this work, it's come back. And one of the things that I've watched since I started and which didn't exist when I started are community choirs. So when I started, if you wanted to join a choir, you had to read music, you had to have an audition, you had to sing in tune. And, and, and then you, so you had to feel pretty good about your ability to sing. Mm. But you know, now it's absolutely wonderful. There are community choirs cropping up everywhere. And, and that is something really that's come about since I started. And it's just wonderful. And also online choirs, which is very bizarre. Online choirs? Yeah. There are wow. Who, do, who set up with people all over the world singing together and, and recording. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, um, what you're saying really resonates with me because I've, when I uh, just talk with people about, you know, the way in which kind of sound um, or the fundamental importance of sound in in our lives, and particularly in the in the in in the various Eastern traditions, which we'll talk about in a moment. Um, you know, it's it, we all sort of intuitively sense that sound is is important because we we all have had the experience of listening to a sound and be or listening to a, a song and being moved, or having a favorite artist that can really kind of capture our emotion. But there, it seems like in and aligned a little bit aligned with what you're saying that. That, that by externalizing sound as a form of entertainment, we've sort of lost the kind of um, connection to its centrality or, its, or, or just how kind of fundamental it is. Does that seem kind of yeah. true to you? And I, I think it's not just in sound, it's in everything. You know, it's in, it's in medicine, it's in healing. It's a, we, we, we think that people outside us in white coats know better than we do. And we've, we've kind of relinquished all our responsibility for everything to people who we think are in charge and who know what's happening mm -hmm. and, um, and who are actually 
uh, in control. But what, we've re what we've, we're beginning to realize is that no one has the faintest idea what's happening. So all these people that we've given you know, over our responsibility to no longer know what's happening. And so in a way, what's happened in the last few years is people have been reclaiming. It's a kind of reclamation. People are reclaiming their responsibility for their own health. They're reclaiming their voices. They're reclaiming everything. You know, people are realizing that there's no one out there. If, if we can't do it, if they can't do it, we have to do it. And, and that's happening all over in every sphere, really. And it's, it's about time. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and also, you know, um, it, there's, a, there's a particular thinker, maybe you're familiar with him. Well, not a thinker. He's a scientist named Stephen Porges, who's also done this really fascinating work about um, the way in which contemplative practices, you know, tone the vagal nerve in, in a variety of ways. And, and so even in the kind of scientific literature, which in, in some sense has been kind of an obstacle to this sort of intuitive knowledge, even, even now there's, you know, this seeming sort of um, at least scientific justification or rationale or explanation for why things like chanting and meditation and 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 these other rituals are are really so so important. So I'm curious what you think. One of the things that happens actually is when when you're chanting and particularly and we'll talk about this later the overtone chanting. What's happening, and this relates to what you're saying, is there's an induction of order into the system. You know, we're a vibratory system, and the more chaotic our emotions are, the more chaotic we are, the more, the more disturbed are our vibrations. So when you do any kind of meditation, or any particularly one involving chant, where you're actually using vibrations, then there is this induction of order into the system. And, and that's, you know, what's needed in order for these kind of things to be developed, including our inner ability, our, our memory, our, our, our mind becoming more active and more alert and all of these things become activated and sharpened by, by this induction of order. Mm, mm. So, uh, so I hear you saying that, you know, obviously a symptom of, of not having these practices would be some kind of disorder, but in your experience, are there, are there kind of specific sort of psychological, physiological symptoms that you see as being um, I mean, I'm sure they all are, but but ones that are more obviously connected to um, a lack of this kind of um, uh, contemplative work. Well, yes, I think anxiety is the main mm. one because we live our lives um, being uh, regretting what we forgot to do yesterday and therefore dreading what we have to do tomorrow. And, and this cycle of regrets and dreads becomes all-encompassing and, until we are never in the present moment. We're always dreading what might happen tomorrow uh, because of our failure of yesterday. So we're, we're, we're in this timeline which has no reality, uh, whereas the only reality is the present moment. And so one of the things that, that sound enables us to do is to become completely in the present moment and in the present moment, you can't be anxious about what might happen tomorrow. Mm -hmm. You can only be in the state of, of blissfulness in the present. And, and this is the core of every spiritual practice is how one way or another to, to be in the present moment, to be here and to be now. And, and sound does this, and the voice particularly, because if you're making a sound, and then the key to that is that it's more important to listen to the sound you're making than to make the sound you're listening to so if while you're making a sound, which clearly you can only do in the present, so you can only chant in the present. So if you're making a sound in the present and you're listening in the present to the sound that you're making in the present, then there are, there's nothing of your mental agitation free to roam around in a state of anxiety of what might happen tomorrow because you're completely absorbed in this, in this circuit of attention on the present moment. And so for that reason, sound is... is in a way, being in a meditative state is a difficult thing to do, but doing it through sound in this way makes it almost easy. Yeah, Except yeah. It's never easy. Right, and I mean, and just to to kind of continue on with what you're saying, I mean, it, it seems like there are many meditation practices that, or or forms of meditation where it would be easy to slip into this kind of regret and, you know, future orientation constantly, right? I mean, that's often the complaint of people who are who are meditating, like I can't stop thinking about the things I have, you know, did yesterday or the plans I have for tomorrow. Whereas, you know, what you're saying is uh, chanting as a form of meditation is it kind of, 
it helps you to to bypass that in a certain way and get you into that into what often is described as that meditative state of of pure presence. So, how can chanting change your life? <laughs> uh, I, I uh, this was a question that came up in your, on your website, and and it's a very direct question. And obviously, we're already talking about it a little bit. But you know, besides you know, reducing anxiety and and being more in the present, how can this kind of practice help? Well, I I, I would question the word besides. I mean, I think that this is completely fundamental to be in the. <laughs> There is nothing more fundamental than being in the present moment. I mean, the cause of all our anxieties is the fact of, of anticipating what might happen, you know, because we have, we're very clever at thinking of the worst possible things that could happen and then getting sick, you know, because it's mm -hmm. this anxiety about what might happen that makes us sick. So I, I think actually that this is the single most important thing. And then, of course, there is this induction of order in the system that I was talking about, whereas this, we're, we are like everything, you know, the, the, everything in the world is vibratory. It's the regularity and the periodicities of movement. And, mm. you know, the, the way of ordering those is by inducting order into that system. And you, you can feel it if you stand next to somebody. Uh, if you're if you're sort of you know in a normal state of agitation and you you st stand next to somebody who's let's say they've been in a three-year retreat <laughs> meditating all the day all day all night you can feel it your whole system sort of vibrates into stillness next to them you know you we, we entrain with with anything any any vibratory system that we are prox proximus to you know that we're near to and yeah. so you actually go into a state of order in training with them so i i think that the, the in terms of changing your life and also you know this is healing because most of our most of our sickness comes through anxiety in some form or other and and so it's the anxiety and the disturbance that gets into the weak points in our physical body so if you so the larger the system of healing the better you know so if you can work with your emotional problems first um and then you gradually get down to the physical ones then you, you know this is this is completely profound and so working with sound you're working with a larger system um inducing order into the system and stillness and presence um and there really is nothing more important, I think. Mm. So as a practice, like as a daily practice, Jill, what would, um, you know, a chanting, what would the regularity of a chanting practice look like? I mean, how, you know, how long, very practically, like how long per day, how many, you know, is it every day? Is it morning and afternoon? Is it just once per day? What, what does that tend to look like? Well, I mean, it's as, it's as, uh, it can be anything. I mean, the main thing about doing regular practice is, you know, if you're too, I, when I, I give a workshop, for example, and um, I teach many forms of sort of sonorous yogas, many forms of spiritual practices. And then, and people often ask me, you know, what shall I do on a daily basis? And the thing is that if you um, are too ambitious, you know, you think, okay, I'm going to do this for an hour a day. So the first day you do it for an hour a day, and then the second day you do it for half an hour, and the third day for a quarter of an hour, and gradually it sort of disappears again. Yeah, so what's yeah. in a way more, more enduring is to start small and then gradually get longer. Obviously, the more you do it, the better, but you, but you have to be realistic about, you know, the main thing is to, is, to, is to incorporate it as a kind of regularity and as a habit into your life so that it becomes, you don't have to think about it because then if you do, there's always something you can do instead. You know, you yeah. can always go down and have a cup of coffee or onto the mail or emails or, you know, it's any excuse not to do it. So the main thing is to establish it as a kind of regularity. So first of all, breathing is, is important. You know, it's important to, to, because we're a wind instrument. So how we, how we breathe, we're a tube with holes in us. And so how we mm. breathe is very, very important. So, uh, you know, I teach all kinds of breathing exercises. So lengthening the breath, because the breath is linked to the mind. So if you have a, a high agitated breath, then your mind will be in a state of agitation. So all yogic techniques involve lengthening the breath, for example, allowing it to become an, an extended out breath, for example. So long extended out breaths, allowing the breath to fill you up again. And um, so working first with the breath <clears throat> and then gradually bringing sound onto the breath. And, but always this circuit of attention, always listening. That's the key, really. It's, it's the most important thing is to listen to the sound that you're making while you're making it. And then there are no cracks 
out of which your your troublesome mind, your monkey mind, can travel in order to make mischief. You know, it's to it's to close all those those escape routes for the mind, all those ways that we have of making shopping lists when we don't want to. Exactly. Yeah. So, and then of course I teach the overtone chanting, um, uh, which is of all ways of chanting in a way it's the most fundamental because uh, Western music. Uh, under, under, with the popularity of keyboard instruments in the 17th century, there was this problem of tuning, which is that um, um, you, after, if you get to a point, if you, if you have a, you go to, um, the tuning system would go from the note to the note, five notes above it. This is unsurprisingly called a fifth. Mm -hmm. And so you go from that note, five notes above that, five notes above that, and you keep going. It's called a cycle, another spiral, of fifths. But when you get to the point after, after 12, when you should reach the octave, you don't. You overlap it, and it's called a Pythagorean comma. And so this overlap is the problem, because when you try and tune keyboard instruments, you can't. They're, they're very in tune in one place, and they're very out of tune in another. So in the 17th century, this was a huge issue, how to deal with the Pythagorean common, this overlap of a quarter of a semitone, which made all instruments horrible. And so what happened was uh, a great fudgery. So it's called the well-tempered clavier, the well-tempered piano, the well-tempered scale. So what happened was this quarter of a semitone was rammed back inside the octave so that all the intervals in the octave were made out of tune. So there's nothing in the octave anymore, which is in tune. So all music in the West is out of tune, including that piano I see behind you. It's probably <laughs> it's electronic and tuned. Oh, it's really out of tune, not just in that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Western music is out of tune. And of course, in the way that we export everything to all corners of the world, we export our music, we export our tuning system. So, so... Um, when you listen to music in, in the same way as we were talking earlier, you entrain with whatever you're listening to. So you entrain with music and you're entraining with music, which is out of tune. So well, there's one way which you can avoid this. And this is by what I call, call the overturn. So every note has a series of notes which are contained within the note. Mm -hmm. And when you allow them to be audible, to, allow them to be heard, then these notes, because they come about through resonance you're not actually making them you're allowing them to come to emerge they are in tune so this is a way of chanting where you are and can only be in tune and so what you're doing is you're chanting on a single note and you're amplifying the the, the, the harmonics so that you hear them as a high flute like sound floating above the fundamental and this way you can be in tune. You can be sound in mind and body. You can be not cracked. You can be not highly strung. Mm. So, you know, is this, is this the same as, I, I think I have heard this style of chanting before. And is it sometimes sound a little bit like, kind of like a didgeridoo that's coming from the, you know, the mouth. It sort of starts as like a low, like sonorous note. And then, and then all of a sudden you hear these different aspects yeah. of it. So yeah. that obviously requires a certain technique, right? So how does one make that? Well, that's what I, that's what I teach. I mean- You're like, come to the workshop. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It is like learning an instrument and you have to practice. And interesting, uh, didgeridoo players, you know, in Arnhem Land, for example, the didgeridoo actually do as well as, what they do is they blow freely down a tube, which creates the fundamental, which changes depending on the size of the tube, the length of the tube, the aperture of the tube. And then on top of it, they do all kinds of overtones, very sophisticated ones. Mm. So, um, I mean, I could demonstrate it. I have no idea how it would, how it would sound. Well, we, we can we can try it. Let's okay. let's try it. Okay, I, I I can't imagine it will work, but we can see. Yes, it worked. It worked, okay. Yeah, amazing, Jill. Yeah, that's exactly. So it's, there's this kind of um, shaping technique that takes place that allows, even though you're chanting the same note, it sounds like you're chanting multiple notes. Yeah, exactly. And sort of moving up and down. Mm. Mm. 
there was a note, but then by changing the shape of the resonant cavity, I'm, I'm amplifying the notes that are contained within that one note. So we always think of one note as being one note, but actually every note contains an infinite number of other notes that we don't hear. So what mm. I'm doing is I'm selectively amplifying them so that they become audible, but they have no overturns themselves. So they sound like very clear bell-like sounds. People say it's the music of the spheres. And it's a very mm. amazing sound. Yeah, it's incredible. So how did you um, come into contact with this particular um, practice? I mean, I know you were in the Tibetan tradition. Is, it, is that part of the Tibetan tradition or did you encounter this in another way? I encountered it in two different ways. I encountered it through the Tibetans. So they have a slightly different way of doing it, which is not what I do. Um, so I worked with the Gyuta monks that you mentioned earlier. Um, so I heard it in the late 60s when the, the, this sound became very intriguing in the West. They'd never heard it in the West before. And so the Gyuta monks came to the West and, and demonstrated it. And then I went and studied with the chant master of the Gyuta monks in the Himalayas. And then, um, the, then the other way that I, um, worked with it was when I was living and working with Karl-Heinz Stockhausen in Germany because in 1968 he wrote a piece called Stimmung which means tuning or uh, voice yeah. or mood and um, which was for six singers singing one note a B flat but but throwing vocal harmonics uh, allowing the overtones to be heard so I had it in a way through these traditional techniques um, through the lamas who who had done it for centuries without really knowing why, and then Stockhausen who who had created music out of nothing. You know, he created music out of sine waves, and and bits of bits of tape stuck together with sellotape. You know, so he created electronic music, and one of the parameters of music is uh, is the harmonic structure. So he then experimented with that vocally. So he, he created music out of nothing. And, and so I got it through both the traditional spiritual practice and also through the Western art music tradition in the form of Stockhausen um, and electronic music. And uh, so I had these two streams, uh, really. Mm. Uh, yeah. Wow. So, um, so let me just go back to what you were saying about the 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 keyboard because I just want to clarify if I have this right. So that the the notes that are contained within that one note that you're chanting in the in the overtone chanting can't be captured correctly by a keyboard instrument because the keyboard instrument uh, overshoots the harmonic range. Uh, I'm I'm probably expressing that inaccurately, but is that essentially the idea? Um, well, so a key, so what happens? So it's not just a keyboard because in 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 music you need to play together with a keyboard. So right. the whole of music was retuned, not just for a keyboard. So if you had a if you sing a cappella, if you sing with no accompaniment, or if you play a violin or anything without a fixed bridge, you can do anything you want. But mm. where you have a keyboard where the notes are actually fixed, you know, if you press. A, a, a key you know the dampers come off and certain keys resonate so you can't modulate the sound so because all music has to tune with that um, the whole of music was retuned so yeah, all yeah. all the intervals within the octave even the octaves are not in tune so the whole of the whole of music was made out of tune but and i and i call this a sort of faustian bargain because all music since bach has been out of tune and Bach celebrated this when he wrote the preludes and fugues for the well-tempered clavier. He showed, he played in every single key, which you couldn't do before. He showed how now as a result of this tuning, you could play in every key. So all music since Bach would never have been possible without this retuning. Wow. So it's, it's an incredible sort of bargain, Faustian bargain, you know, we'll make all our music out of tune and look what we can do with it now. So yeah. there would, none of this would have been possible without that. So it's a, it's a, you know, it's a fudgery, it's a bargain, you know, it, and there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. You have to live with it. Yeah, that's so interesting. So I want to kind of shift gears a little bit and ask you a question. Um, you know, we were talking about how chanting can sort of change your life. But of course, it's not just about, you know, my, it's not just an egoic, um, you know, self-centered thing. There's also a kind of 
reverberating effect that can take place and um, you know uh, in relation to other people and 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 perhaps socially politically and you know when you uh, in your website when I was doing a little bit of reading I noticed you someone asked you a question um, related to Rupert's um, theory of morphic resonance which actually, ironically, I didn't ask about at all during our interview. I managed, I realized afterwards, managed to not talk to him about it. Um, so I was just curious, actually, how, how what morphic resonance, what's that? You're going to ask me about it instead. I'm going to ask you about it instead. Because <laughs> I think, it, you know, especially in relation to the work you do with sound, it seems like there's definitely some alignment there. So what is that morphic resonance and how does you know, working with sound in this way relate to that um, theory, essentially? Well, I, I, very, very interesting, really, because both Rupert and I started with the question, how does form come into being long before we met each other? That was wow. both of us. That was our question. Um, so his theory of morphic resonance uses the resonance as a metaphor. So it's not really yeah. about sound. It's, it's about it's a metaphor of resonance. But how it um, comes very strongly into play in my work is through what I call the family and ancestral field. So this is another aspect of my work, um, which um, we could talk about. Um, yeah, I think this is a good segue. Yeah. So, um, so um, the, the work posits, posits a, a, a family and ancestral field, um, which we are part of. And so what is very, very clear now is that descendants of uh, earlier members of the family who are no longer living, who have undergone any kind of trauma, suffer themselves. And this has become known, this is, this is actually the, the, the hot subject in the life sciences. It's called epigenetics. Yeah. And now this is interesting because one of the things that I did in the early 70s, I did a research fellowship with Morris Wilkins, who with Watson and Crick got the Nobel Prize for discovering DNA. This is something wow. I did at King's College. And at that time, you know, so he, they, it was discovered in the late 50s, I think. I don't remember exactly when he got the Nobel Prize, maybe in the 60s. And so at that time, it was still kind of early days in DNA. And, and the idea then was that everything was inherited in our DNA. But yeah. now, interestingly, the hot subject is epigenetics. So how are things transmitted not in the DNA? Mm. And so all the materialistic scientists, so first of all, there's no question that this happened. So it's, it's, very, it's, it's very clear, for example, that uh, descendants of, uh, of, of the people who were caught up in the Holocaust have, have, have physical changes, not just emotional and mental changes, but physical changes. And the descendants of people in Finland who were exiled during the war uh, have mental, a much higher degree of mental illness and also chemical changes. The, the people who were descendants from the famine in Ireland, from the famine in Holland at the end of the war. So all these kind of racial um, situations, um, there's a huge evidence now that, that multiple descendants, you know, multiple uh, generations later uh, are affected by the trauma that happened. And then there's one very famous uh, example of the inheritance of fear in mice, which was done in Atlanta about five years ago, where mice were, um, um, they were uh, given an electric shock while uh, smelling a, a completely um, f a normal, innocent flower-like substance called acetone phenone, a, a sort of almondy, flowery smell. And then they found that not just the children, but the grandchildren of the mice when smelling this innocent smell were totally freaked out and, yeah. and, and fearsome so they found that this that the fear was inherited through the smell so so now this is and now with nematode worms they've found changes going down 15 generations so this is all something which you know in my work there's no there's no question about this so yeah. as i said all the material scientists are trying to find what turns the genes on and off you know trying to sort of embed it materialistic and so on but rupert's theory of morphic resonance makes so much more sense that, that these things are somehow laid down in a field we don't know what fields are i mean we didn't know what gravity was you know we just knew the effects of gravity so fields are very mysterious things that you know the effects of 
even though you don't know the workings of them. Mm. So what I've what um, I found in this work is that the and there's a there's a field of the ancestors, family and ancestors. And so whenever there's any kind of trauma, and, and the trauma means an interruption. So it means an interruption in what might notionally be thought of as a, as a, as a completion of a cycle of life. In other words, dying young, uh, dead in battle, illness, mental illness, incarceration, um, dodgy dealing, emigration, abortion, um, miscarriages, uh, adoption, um, suicides, murders, you know, anything which interrupts a life. So what that gives rise to is a kind of impulse of unfinished business, which gets passed down the generations. So usually there's somebody in every subsequent generation who either follows almost exactly what happened to the earlier generation without knowing the person existed usually, or in some way being uh, exiled from the family field or being excluded or self-excluding or in or you know or patterns of suicides going down through families the same thing happening again and again but the people to whom this happens are the ones that have the opportunity of healing it mm -hmm. sorry one second All right, sorry about that, continue. So, so the interesting thing is that the people who suffer uh, through this, this, these inherited traumas are also the ones that have the opportunity of healing it. And so, um, and usually there's very, there's very often somebody in a family who takes on that responsibility. They feel in some very mysterious way responsible for the health of the family. And so they're the ones that usually start by coming and doing the work with me. And then what happens is that extraordinary things happen to other members of the family while they're doing the work. And so mm -hmm. you know, sometimes people come back on, say, the second day of a weekend and say, you're not going to believe this, but my, my mother's been estranged from five brothers and sisters for 26 years. They all telephoned while we were working, you know. So really extraordinary things happen to other members. And so then they get intrigued and they start coming. And, and it's, it affects everybody. It's like the family is a, is a web, a complex web. And when, you, when somebody works to to acknowledge these these interruptions and heal them in different ways, which is really about bringing in the outliers, you know, acknowledging and honoring the the abusers, not not you know putting them out to outer darkness, but bringing them back into the field so that everybody has their rightful place. And when you do this, everybody feels good, even if they're not present. Mm. So, what kind of um, you know? Obviously, you don't want to give it all away, <laughs> but what kind of practices or, or rituals are included in this kind of a process? Is it a lot of sound work, or is there is there other aspects to it? So, what I do is I I, I work with sound between each person. So, I, I try to work with most people who are in who are group in the group. So, we have a group of people in a circle, and then I I choose the person to work with but before we work um, we, we we make sound of different kinds to to amplify the family field and we do a kind of trance movement to again to which, which is related traditionally to connecting with the ancestors so the, I just wanted to say there's something about the ancestors which is very interesting in in most traditions ancestors have a job description and that's to uh, to look after to guide and keep keep the living alive. So, but the ancestors themselves have no agency unless the living acknowledge the ancestors. So all they can do is, is be like annoying, clamorous children trying to trip us up to remind us to get in touch and honor them. So they become, they are, they, they are often a nuisance until we actually do something to, to honor them and, and recognize them. And, and so as soon as you do that, then that gives them agency. It opens the streams of transmission so they can then become helpful and do their job. So that's very much part of this work, um, which is acknowledging the ancestors in a, in a way that they can come on board. Wow. And then, and then I have people to represent people's family members, you know, who then become sort of autonomous people. Not uh, acting, it's not play acting, but they, they somehow, in some completely mysterious way, become them. 
I mean, it's quite extraordinary. You know, when you're chosen to represent somebody, you it's like you become them and you feel like them and you feel the pain that they had or, you know, if their elbow hurt, you feel a painful elbow. Or, so it's very mysterious. And then, and then you know, the whole thing kind of unfolds. I, everything, every time it's completely different. And guiding it is a very exciting process because you have to ride the wave of novelty in its moment of revelation. There's no point at which you can say, if this, then that. It's, it's yeah. just acting as it's revealed, which is thrilling because you have to completely trust the process. You can't have any system in place. You know, you just have to trust that you're, you're, you're in the flow and doing the right thing. And, 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 and for some reason, I'm able to do that. And it's completely magical. Wow. That's incredible. I mean, my family definitely needs it. <laughs> so I'm going to be, I'm going to be looking up the, this, the, the workshop for sure. Um, and you know, one of the things that sort of just that I love about this kind of, um, way of situating our own trauma is that, you know, it seems like in, at least in the mainstream kind of discourse, we're always looking for the source of our own stuff within this kind of immediate, you know, self-narrative that started when you were however many years old or when you were born. And, and oftentimes, you know, even that kind of uh, assumption, right, gives birth to its own kind of problems. Whereas being able to situate one's experience in that kind of larger web or field, um, even that alone, acknowledging that seems to offer its own kind of, you know, liberating sort of feeling just to to not have to take responsibility in that sort of way in that egoic way to something that you know is is beyond you in in, in the kind of ancestral field that you um happen to belong to it's tremendously liberating and it has big implications for adoption because you know people used to think when you adopted a child that you were getting a kind of tabula rasa you were getting a clean slate and that what you then did you know would affect the child um, but yeah. then people began to think, well, you know, what happened when the child was in the womb? So that gradually that it was pushed back further to include the time, you know, of, of the, the person who was carrying the child and the traumas involved with that, for example. Yeah. But, but even now, you know, the implications of adoption are huge because you are actually inheriting the entire family field going back generations. And, and so, yeah, that, it has big implications uh, in that respect as well. But yeah, it's very liberating. There's no question about it. Yeah, wow. So is this the process that you use in, in, in the context of these um, ceremonies? Is this one that you've developed, you know, yourself according to your own, you know, education and intuition? Or is it something that is has been informed by um, uh, more directly from certain lineage streams? Both. It's both those. So I've been working with so long with sound that that you know my use of sound has come through just years of experience. And then this the work with the with the family field is something that's come down through the Gestalt tradition, through people like Virginia Satir, through through um, um, play acting, you know, acting out family members, and then um, and then this became part of a a movement which was made popular by somebody called Bert Hellinger, who's a, an elderly German um, ex-priest um, psych psychotherapist who, who popularized it and called it Family Constellations. Um, and so who I know very well because he uses Rupert's theory to explain the family field. So we know him well and he comes to visit when he's here. And he asked me to demonstrate the kind of work I was doing in Germany at a conference in the 90s. So, so it, it, it's a combination of all the sound work that I've ever done, the ceremonial work, because I think working ceremonially is really important um, for other reasons that we can go into. Um, and, um, and this kind of Gestalt tradition, which comes through the Western tradition and through people like, you know, Virginia Satir, Bert Hellinger and, and, um, and my work, and others, but but the way I do it is very different, you know. It because I think it's very important to embed things in a in a much bigger spiritual dimension, whereas people yeah. like Bert, although is quite extraordinary, but for him it's it's not a spiritual activity, you know. So for me, you, we need all the help we can get, and so unless we embed it in something <laughs> much bigger, you know, we might as well yeah. forget. 
Yeah, what is, I mean, let's talk more about that. I mean, what is the kind of, what's the problem with only keeping it, you know, narrowly constrained to that sort of just psychotherapeutic lens? I mean, what are we losing when we, when we, when we sort of reduce it to that? Well, when, when, when losing um, a much bigger understanding, you know, that when, when you embed something in a spiritual, a spiritual reality, there's, there's, you're embedding it in a much vaster knowing, uh, you know, a, a, a kind of field of knowing, which is way beyond anything that we individually can have. But what, actually, one of, the, one of the reasons this work is so powerful is because if you compare it with talking therapy, for example, the problem there is that most of our problems are deeply rooted in our unconscious. And if yeah. you undergo any kind of talking therapy, you can only talk uh, on the level of consciousness. There's no way you can get below that. And so this work gets, you know, you know really drills down deeply into the unconscious and and you know explicates it out into into the world in a way that otherwise you can't do so it's a very very powerful method for accessing this kind of thing so so not only do you need to do that but you also by embedding it in a much bigger sense of knowing then you know you're you're and and certainly when i'm guiding it i do that you know i'm tuning into a much bigger reality we just there's an ability to really get a bigger picture and and have more help and assistance and and we need all the help we can get yeah yeah absolutely so you touched on a moment ago about kind of the importance of um that ceremony and working in a kind of ceremony setting as opposed to something like maybe you know just your individual you know a meditation practice or whatever individual rituals you do um so <clears throat> besides you know situating it in a larger spiritual context what what else is kind of fundamental or what is um uh is so important about uh working in a ceremonial way well one of the things um when you when you go to do any kind of work um, personal work or or any kind of you you start off by thinking that you could be better you could be kinder you could be more enlightened you could be more generous you know you want to change you have a sense that the way you are isn't as good as you would like to be that you could improve in some way by doing something right so that you want to go from here to there mm -hmm. so you go somewhere and you do the work and then you go home but the people at home don't know that you've changed. So, that, you know, it's like a jigsaw puzzle. You know, they, they resonate with you in the way that they always have. And so there's no way you can actually sustain the new you because you're going back into the kind of resonant context that you came out of, which knew how you were before you started. Whereas if you work ceremonially, you have people around you who witness you going from here to there who are present, who know, and you know that they know that you know that they know that there's no going back. So you have this kind of resonance containment, which allows for you to be established in the new. Because if you make any changes, because they're new, they're difficult to sustain because you, you have years of the old way of being, which has got a much stronger field. So any, any kind of introduction into some new needs, needs nourishing and containing and supporting. And that's why, you know, um, I always think about weddings with this, you know, it, it, tra traditional weddings. In fact, th there is, yeah. So, so a lot of people nowadays, they have, they have destination weddings. So they go off to Mexico, they get married underwater with a couple of friends who can afford to go and they come back and they tell their friends, you know, we're married and their friends say, oh yes, well, uh, really? You know, but they weren't invited. So they, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's another thing. Not being invited is another thing. But, um, but in a traditional wedding, you know, you invite all your societal context who then witnesses you going from being unmarried, which we thought you, know, you might have been always before, to being the new you, which is married. And so that means that your entire societal context knows that you are now married and contains that. And, and I, I once, one of my students found this wonderful paper which is they were trying to find the correlations between what made for, a, for, a, for longevity in marriage. So they got, they got all the parameters, you know, the size of the cake, the, 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 the expense of, you know, the wedding, um, the situation, how long the couple had known each other, did the parents know each other, you know, so every kind of parameter you could think of. And, and the, 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 in terms of correlation, the only thing that made any difference in relation to the longevity of the marriage was how many people were invited to the wedding. Not how much was spent wow. on food, but how many people witnessed 
you're going from being unmarried to being married. So, so the, the important thing there was the witnessing. So mm. the ceremony, it's, it's, about, it's all about the witness, you know, the witnessing you going from here to there, witnessing you undergoing any kind of change. Wow. So there, we, this has been an amazing conversation and, and, um, and I've, it's been totally delightful talking to you about your very interesting and important work. And I feel like there's one area that we haven't touched on so much, which is the mandala ceremonies, um, which is another um, offering that you have, which are these week-long um, ceremonies. So how do these differ or how do they complement or um, the, the other work that you do in terms of the sound workshops and, the, and what we were talking about, the family constellation and ancestry uh, uh, ceremonies? Well, I think interestingly, they bring everything I've ever done together, really, because they're very visual as well. It's a, it's a completely immersive process and it lasts five days of a week. So I, I spent, you know, years studying Tibetan Buddhism. And mm. one of the very, very core parts of Tibetan Buddhism is this notion of the mandala, which is a diagram of consciousness. And, mm -hmm. it, you know, it has it has five colors, five directions. Um, something in the middle maybe some kind of aspect of divinity that you identify with and it has got you know four doors and so um and it's a diagram that you contemplate so what i what i in in the in the early 2000s about 2003 i had this revelation i realized um that it was a di it was a ground plan of the stupa so in buddhism the buddha the statue of the buddha is a very late invention and he comes about when the Buddhists met the Greeks in Afghanistan, which is why he looks like a Greek sculpture, which mm. is why he's wearing a toga and sandals. So he's Greek, essentially. And wow. he came late. So before the image of the Buddha, there were demarcations of the center. There were, there were pillars and there were stupas and there were the wheels and footprints, but that was it. And so uh, the stupa is a demarcation of the center. You know, it's, it's got a big bulbous thing and then the sort of umbrellary thing and, 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 and four directional gates. And what you do when you go to the stupa is you walk around it, you circumambulate it. And again, you're aspiring to the center, which is the still point. And when you go around it, you know, you have these four directions which correspond to the north, south, east, they correspond to the directions and then you have the central direction. So um, what I realized was, you know, having spent time in Bodenach in, in Kathmandu and, and seeing the ground plan, I realized that the diagram of the mandala is actually a, a, a ground plan of the stupa. And so it's a rotational journey and it's a rotational journey to the center through the directions. And so the mandala is a very complex diagram. It has all kinds of different aspects. There are many, many mandalas, and they often yeah. have an aspect of divinity in the center. And it's essentially a, a spiral journey into the center. And the four directions, which have four different colors, well, five directions, five colors, correspond to what are known as the afflictive emotions. The word is klesha, there's no real translation. Mm -hmm. So if it, it's, it's thought of as afflictive emotions, that's one translation, uh, which are not deeply embedded in the psyche, but they're, they're patterns of, of reaction. So for example, in the East, um, uh, which is blue, which is anger, um, the, the, um, so each of, these direct, each of these afflictive emotions has its flip side, which is the wisdom which you come to when you, when you transform it. So, so anger, the flip side of anger is mirror-like wisdom. So if you see things as they are in a mirror, there's nothing to react to. You have no hopes, no fears, no disappointments. You don't react with anger because it isn't as you wanted it to be. You see things in a mirror, mirror-like, everything is as it is. So there's no reaction. So each of these directions have these, have these, uh, afflictive emotions and their corresponding wisdoms this is all built into the to the understanding of the mandala it's it's very very complex it's a completely extraordinary um understanding of the nature of consciousness and then there are there's no there's no self in buddhism you know that's the delusion there are these aggregates or skandhas which are sort of groups 
uh, heaps and so it, it embodies all these different aspects so anyway what I realized was that it was it was really a journey and so I wrote the journey of the soul the spiral journey of the soul you know and here it was so um, so it involves my whole idea of the journey of the soul the development through, through soul then the, my I was a painter originally so colors you know all the directional colors so we become completely immersed in the colors of the direction and then sound because it's continuous we chant continuously we have a half hour cycle of practice which is related to the aspect of enlightenment that we're working with mm -hmm. um which we repeat continuously for five days and we go through so that so we progress we start in one place and we end up in that place five days later but everything's different so mm -hmm. there's a, every half hour the whole mandala turns everybody moves on like it clicks around and and then we have a psychological component where we the one that i'm about to work on now at the end of april is related to green tara who's an aspect of enlightenment in tibetan buddhism and and so the psychological component is working with uh, our aspirations what do we want to be what do we want to have what do we want in relationships and what do we want to do in the world and mm. and so we articulate our desires in that and then we articulate what's stopping us and so the psychological work is over is letting go of both our desires for what we want to be or have and letting go of that which is blocking it because if we if we let go of, of desire then you know only then can really it be realized so anyway it's a very very intense and very magical and the, the thing that's unique about it is the duration because there is nothing in our society any longer which has this kind of duration where you repeat and repeat and repeat a continuous chant and it's it's absolutely extraordinary yeah and it's, and it's, it's like the Ching, you know you have these incredible permutations where you find yourself working opposite another person with a certain kind of you're reflecting their their aspiration or their psychological components and, and it's, it's very hard to describe yeah but it sounds utterly beautiful and i love your point that you're making about um uh the repetition because i feel like you know we it's sort of you know our 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 disposition in this culture is sort of like oh well i've done that now i'm moving on to the next thing i've done that and moving on to the next thing there isn't this sense of like what arises when we repeat a mantra or a chant or you know what takes place in the kind of container of that repetition um so that's really beautiful so uh jill this has been so wonderful um, i'm wondering if before we close i'm going to ask you a little bit about um things coming up so you can share with the audience but is there anything else um related to your work or the topics we've been exploring today that you'd like to um talk about before we uh call it a day well, I think we talked. We've we've roamed around far and wide. I think. I think. That's yes, fine. we have. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Well. Um, so I'd like to, I'd obviously, like to people to my website, obviously, because there's a lot of information there. And there um, is. So that's um, uh, healingvoice.com is the website, or or my name. But Healing Voice is easier to spell and remember. Healingvoice.com. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, healingvoice.com. I've been exploring it myself um, before we had our interview, and it's a it's a wonderful resource. There's lots of articles and information about uh, what's coming up for Jill. Um, but Jill, what is what are the next? I know you have something very close to where I grew up in. Um, well, I believe it's British Columbia. Is that correct? Yes. So I have on the. I think it's the twenty seventh. Um, I just checked the dates. Um, I think it's the twenty seventh of. Um, uh, I just need to check. Um, let's see, twenty seventh of twenty seventh, twenty sixth of July to the thirty first. I have um, I have a workshop on Cortez Island, Hollyhock. Um, it's a five day workshop doing the healing the family and ancestors. Wow. Uh, and and I have coming up in England um, on the twenty sixth of April. I have a, one of these mandala weeks. Um, the Healing Voice Week with the Mandala of Green Tara, and that's in Somerset near Glastonbury, which is the, one of the most magical and sacred parts of Britain. And uh, and I still have a few places on that, and it's it's a beautiful place, and it's a fantastically transformative week. So that's the twenty sixth of April. So April and July. The, so anybody who's interested, who's listening, please do uh, check out healingvoice.com and. Uh, 
and join Jill for one of those fantastic events. Are there any others coming up that you'd like to mention, Jill? Well, there's another one in the States. Um, I, I'm working in uh, Massachusetts. Um, I'm doing, um, um, on the 4th to the 6th, I'm doing a Healing Voice Weekend in, at Rowe Camp. And then from the 6th to the 11th, I'm doing Healing Family and Ancestors. So it's a, it's a, it's a whole week of two different aspects of my work. And that's in, 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 um, in Western Massachusetts. Wonderful. Yeah. All right. Well, Jill, this has been um, fantastic. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today and talking to me about your inspiring work. And oh, well, I have one I other thing. Yes. I have, other, yes. Um, <laughs> I have a week of the family work again near Glastonbury in Somerset um, on the 14th of June. So that's, an, that's the most amazing of all the healing family and ancestor workshops, which is over the summer solstice. Um, oh, in, wow we celebrate and actually on the 26th of april we also celebrate may day so i over these and i have a week in october where we celebrate all saints and all souls and we do a requiem mass so i i time these week intensives over these important days of equinoxes and solstice and not equinoxes the cross quarter days and the solstice so very important because this is when the veil is drawn back and contact right. with ancestors is much much easier excellent all right um, and all of those are currently on your website. That's correct? Yes, they are. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you so much, Jill. It's been such a pleasure.